Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm so glad that we have this time together. Probably the most pivotal moment in world history took place at Calvary. That's from the Latin word calva, which means skull. It's that skull-shaped hill in Jerusalem, which was the site of the crucifixion of Jesus. So the sinless Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, was crucified for sin on a Roman cross. And the scriptures talk about this hundreds of years before the event in Isaiah chapter 53. God became a man so that he could get close to us. He left that eternal place of glory only to willingly submit to the most horrific form of execution ever devised by man because he loved us. I was thinking about that on the way over to work today and thinking how grateful I am that he went and died for our sins and created a way for us to know him personally and have eternal life with him. So when we get down to that topic of death and dying, we have to always find a way to put it into perspective because sacrifice that Christ made is the most important moment in world history for a Christian, the resurrection of course, as well. But we also have our own pain that we go through when it comes to our earthly losses. I thought, what better person to bring on the show than Dr. Melissa Mork? She is the Department Chair of Psychology, Criminal Justice, and Law Enforcement. She does all kinds of cool things. She also is a very funny person that loves to talk about therapeutic benefits of humor. So she's uh, right up my alley, she likes to talk about grief, and she also teaches a online course, which you can take. I'm going to find out more about that. Melissa, welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah. Now, I my memory is very short. Yes. So when you talked about this MOOC course, it sounds like a very f- weird word, but I know, in fact, it's an acronym. It's an so acronym. Tell me again what it stands for. It stands for Massive Open Online Course. It's massive, meaning there's not really a limit there's to no how limit. many people can take it. Yep. Uh, open, so it's open to anyone who wants to enroll. Doesn't There's no like GPA requirement or anything like that. Oh, it's online. Lucky for me. And it is a course. Nice. Indeed, a college-level course. And people can get credit, college credit. Serious. Western. Yeah. And you don't have to pay it to do this? I believe there's a slight fee to, to take the final exam okay. in order to get credit, but it's okay. very nominal. So, And the topic, again, is what? Navigating grief with humor. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about types of grief and tasks of grief and coping strategies and resilience and humor in grief and meaning and purpose. How do we use this adversity and these this suffering to grow in Christ? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And your dad, Bart Bartman. Yes. <laughs> Good memory. Oh, how do you ever forget the name <laughs> Of Melissa Mork's dad, who is Bart Bartman. Bart Bartman. <laughs> That's, yeah. Great name. Was he a guy with a good sense of humor? He had a great sense of humor, although his humor was definitely dad humor. Okay. You know, those those jokes that would make you roll your eyes, you know? <laughs> Familiar? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Sure, yeah. 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 
Yeah. So my my mother was actually much funnier. She was hysterical. Yeah. 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 So uh, let our listeners know once again that mm. your journey involved uh, the loss of your husband, and there was a lot of need for. Uh, grieving and bereavement, yeah. and you had to figure out a way to cope yourself. Yeah. It actually started with my parents. They both passed away when I was in college, and then I had a series of reproductive losses, and a good friend caused her own death by a gunshot. She was my bridesmaid. Um, I've had other friends pass away since then, and then my husband died three and a half years ago of lung cancer. And it was at my mother's funeral where I had this kind of epiphany because she'd been so funny. The pastor had stopped in the middle of the service and said, I'd like you to each turn to a neighbor and share a favorite story about Trudy. And first there were just, you know, whispers and sniffles. And then there were chuckles and giggles. And then pretty soon there were snorts and guffaws and this, these waves of laughter washed over me. And it just felt like such a balm. The Holy spirit was telling me you can, you're allowed to laugh here. Mm -hmm. It's safe to laugh here. And I was so grateful because that's how I needed to remember her was she just made me laugh all the time. And if I could laugh about her, then I could get through it. After Scott died, I revisited that mm-hmm. because he also was a funny man. And our relationship, the the foundation of it was our faith and our shared humor. And so if I could remember him and the kids and I could laugh about his foibles and guffaws and his silliness and idiosyncrasies, we felt closer to him, and uh, we didn't miss him quite as much. Mm-hmm. So, Melissa, if we were going to ask our listeners a question regarding navigating some of their grief with humor, what would be a good question to ask? Well, I guess the question would be, how has humor helped them? Yeah. And, and, and it's not just bereavement over the death of a loved one, but maybe uh, you know a relationship breakup or a, a loss of a job or a dream or any other kind of yeah. loss. But there's yeah. uh, how has humor helped them? If humor has helped you navigate a loss or a life transition or something that's pretty a pretty big deal and you can share a couple of sentences text me what it is 877-933-2484 i would love to hear how how it worked for you and what and maybe what you did and how you used humor to cope because it's a uh, it's one of those gifts that god gives us absolutely you know and we've got this um, pharmacy of chemicals in our head right Mm-hmm. that was factory installed, <laughs> right? Yes. And then we have ability to access those through laughter. Absolutely. And then these chemicals come flying out of yeah. our head and, and comforts cascade. our bodies. It's a cascade. I love the word cascade. Yeah, endorphins yes. and serotonin and dopamine Everything. and even oxytocin. It's all good laugh- stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. all good. Yeah, so how important it is for us to have um, access to that and laughter is one way to do it and exercise is another way. So there's a couple natural ways that we can access that great storehouse of chemicals. Honestly, if we could encapsulate all of the feel-good hormones and all of the benefits of laughter or all of the benefits of exercise and put them in pill form and put them on the pharmacy (laughs) shelf, that stuff would be flying off the shelves, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. we can do both of those for free. Yeah, I like that idea. So I'd love, because Mother's Day is Sunday, can you tell me a story about your mom? Yeah. Because she's the funny one. She was the funny one. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. Um, Doesn't have to be the, one of the funny stories, but it'd be nice if it was. She was a terrible cook. She okay. was the worst cook ever. And there were eight Did kids. Did she know it? No, she knew. Yeah, she <laughs> she used that to her benefit. And so uh, one time she made, uh, my dad liked meat in his uh, spaghetti sauce, and she didn't have any uh, ground beef. And so she pureed hot dogs in the blender and added them to the spaghetti sauce. And it was the worst stuff ever. That sounds ever. terrible. But then... 
because she couldn't let it all go to waste, she put it in a container and put it in the freezer and marked it uh, wiener spaghetti. And then every time she'd want to go out to eat, she'd pull this block of wiener spaghetti out of the freezer and set it on the dishwasher to defrost just as my, you know, right before my dad would walk in and he'd see it and say, want to go to Perkins? And she'd say, sure. And then she'd stick it back in the freezer. And So it was a prop. She used it as a prop. This she was, was the way she got dad yeah. to take her out to dinner. That's right. Oh, yeah. that's spectacular. Yeah. She wasn't a dumb woman, no. Yeah, she, she knew how to work it. <laughs> how long ago, she passed away when you were in college? Mm-hmm, 1995. Wow. So that was, it's never, you can't, you lose your mom, it's. Yeah, mother loss is really hard. That's the toughie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And, and we can't, we can't compare, you know, your grief to my grief. It's always incomparable because it was different nature of relationship, different person, different kind of. Um, death. I mean, there are just so many variables that impact the the kind of grief we experience. So there's no comparison. But I think the best thing that we can do is say, "Yeah, that was really hard." Mm-hmm. Melissa, it's interesting when you've got a family of siblings and there's significant loss in the family. It's interesting how siblings will all process grief differently. Yeah. You would think there should there should be some uniform code yeah. in the family. Yeah. Now, we're all going to process this the same, but that's yeah. just not true at all. No, just and because you, of dispositional factors and totally. personality factors. And the, we had different parents. Like my mother was a very different parent to me than she was to my sister, for example. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's important that we give each other the space to mourn individually and personally. Yes. Because you can sometimes be mad. Well, they're not very upset. Why aren't they upset? Right. You know, it's... Right. Doesn't doesn't feel good. And we see this among couples who've lost a child that, you know, one spouse will look at the other and say, you're not displaying it the same way I'm displaying mm-hmm. it. Therefore, you're not feeling it as yeah. deeply as I'm feeling it. And it's just such a, a personal set of responses. So we need to give each other space and grief or, mm-hmm. you know, grace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the laughter that you had with your hubby, Steve? Mm-hmm. Scott. Scott, I'm sorry. I've... Um, you guys built up a whole uh, library of comedic material mm-hmm. that became just very personal to you, too. Mm-hmm. So when one of those two players on that leave, yes. there's a big, big, big loss. Yes. Because who gets those jokes? Do your kids? Not really. <laughs> that's what I mean. <laughs> they didn't get them when we were, he was alive. <laughs> right. Yeah. So there is something that's missing horribly in yes. that department. Yes. But the one of the best things about that kind of relationship and any I think every marriage relationship is the laughter that we bring into the that develops such intimacy, you know, and and uh yeah, that is something that you grieve heavily when it's gone. Mm-hmm. So the MOOC course, yeah. a massive online open online course. Massive open online course. Mm-hmm. Is that with a C or a K? <laughs> it's with a C. <laughs> Because I would put a K in there because that would just make the word cuter. Yeah, it would look a lot cuter that way, yes. MOOC. MOOC. Yeah, MOOC. You can, how do you sign up to do that? Well, um, enrollment opens Monday, June 7th and closes Sunday, June 20th. And we start the course um, Monday, June 28th. So they can, uh, yeah, go to any of the, yep. It's on MyFaithRadio.com? It is on MyFaithRadio.com and, yep. That's Easy. Go to myfaithradio.com and sign up again starts June what? June 7th. June 7th. You can register mm-hmm. to take this MOOC course taught by Dr. Melissa Mork, mm-hmm. Navigating Grief Through Humor. Mm-hmm. Love it. Yep. Let me take a break. We'll come back. Right now I've got zero responses from listeners. I'm mm-hmm. not taking that personally. But you know, sometimes you got to explain how you're using, how you used humor to get through a tough situation. I can do that. That's, that's not easy to do. We'll be right back. 
happy music, isn't it, Melissa? Mm, it's lovely. Yeah, it's lovely. Play it some more. Did you compose this yourself? Yeah, I did. Yes, very yeah. nice. Yeah, I did. All right, we're talking to Dr. Melissa Mork, and she's got a MOOC course, a massive open open online course. Course. Yeah. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> and it's uh, talking about. What is it talking about? Bereavement talking about, through humor. We're talking about navigating grief. Navigating grief through humor. I know. Humor. But we're also, you're also going to address some of the issues regarding uh, COVID. Absolutely. And post-COVID. Say more about that. Yeah. You know, grief isn't just bereavement over the death of a loved one, although uh, previous offerings of this course was uh, pretty focused on that. But since COVID has hit, we've recognized that there are so many significant losses that we've experienced due to the global pandemic. And so we're going to be exploring those as well. And the stories that are being told within the MOOC aren't just stories from the book or stories from the videos, but uh, participant stories as well. So when participants enroll and participate, I want to make it about their story as well so they can kind of tap into what's been happening in their own life. We sometimes don't label what we've been experiencing. We just kind of step over the detritus and move on. And um, so this course is going to be focusing on not just bereavement, but also COVID losses, Mm -hmm. like loss of um, traditions, loss of routines, loss of healthy healthy coping strategies. Like when I'm stressed out, I like to go to the gym. I like to go to church. I like to hang out with friends at coffee shops. None of those were options for me for a very long time. And so I was have forced to resort to other coping strategies that didn't really work for me, were maybe not so healthy for me. Um, And that's just one example of losses. But I think having to shelter in place with um, family members, parents having to teach their children from home, those are other sets of challenges that kind of... there's loss embedded in those changes. So we're going to explore all of those. Hasn't there been a loss of human contact? Even when you go into the grocery store, everyone oh, yeah. has a mask, on, a mask on. Yep. And maybe they're making less eye contact because yep. everyone's trying to keep their distance. Yep. So we've lost a lot of our basic human connectors. Absolutely. And even though we've been attempting to reconnect via Zoom, you can't make eye contact on Zoom. You're looking at one person, their block. They are not looking directly back in your eyes. And that lack of eye contact is a loss of human connection that is absolutely critical. And so it's not just physical touch that we're losing in our social distancing. It's the lack of eye contact. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wonder if we've even, some of our skill sets have eroded a little bit. I mean, we don't, we're not making the kind of small talk we once made. No, I'm finding this very awkward right now. You Totally. <laughs> I'm glad you brought it up because I was just going to say that myself. But you don't you don't really meet in coffee shops and have small no. talk. You go through the drive-through now, right? You don't chat with people in the grocery store line. Not not at all. No. Well, you're, you're first first of all, you're six feet away from them. Mm-hmm. You're and you're standing masked. on your little dot. Mm-hmm. And then you don't even bother with eye contact there because why bother? What's the why? Point? Yeah. What's the point? Just I just want to get to my car. Yeah. Yeah. And so I I agree. I think that we have lost not just the human connection, but we have lost our some of those skill sets, and our kids have lost some of their skill sets as well mm-hmm. because they've been doing online classes, which necessary, yes, but not ideal. Not ideal for mm-hmm. sure. So when we are going through grief, and I just been getting some nice text messages from listeners, and a listener just lost her mom two months ago. 
And she says, this Mother's Day is going to be difficult. Yes. And then another listener, David, said, there's always something in your relationship with the person you are grieving about that can bring humor and lighten the feeling of your grief. And that is a very smart comment. Absolutely. That is a smart comment. And that's kind of at the at the core of, of my own philosophy and how I grieve is that if I can think about how I've laughed with that person, I've relocated them into my heart. I've I've restructured the relationship somewhat and so that I can continue to love that person and, and connect with that person even though they're no longer physically present. And that really is one of the tasks, the fundamental tasks of grief is to find a new way of relating to the person who's gone. Mm-hmm. Another comment just came in. I took Melissa's course two or three summers ago and found it helpful. The reading and videos were easy to keep up with and there was also an interactive component Highly recommended. Yay. Yeah. Thank you. I'll pay you later. I think she wants to get paid right now. (laughs) I just got exclamation mark. Venmo, please. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we all, we all are going through some loss. And if, you know, laughter proves our humanity when we realize we're not in control and we can still have joy despite our difficult circumstances. And even um, not just in despite, but because of our dis- difficult circumstances, I think that m- the depth of my gratitude because of what I've gone through is so great that I am able to laugh in the face of adversity. I can be clothed with strength and dignity and laugh without fear of the future um, because I've gone through some stuff, mm-hmm. you know? So... Living a sheltered, protected life in a little, you know, glass house is not going to be, uh, we're not going to grow through that kind of ease. We grow and are transformed through pain. And uh, and the true joy is made manifest through that, I think. I think belly laughs, they they almost go in our diaries or journals because we we recall, we were playing, you know, you, you recall some story. I was playing golf four years ago and we got at the seventh hole. We were laughing so hard we couldn't breathe. They rem- people remember stuff like that mm-hmm. because it's that important. Mm-hmm. It is that important. I, um, I'm part of a critical incident stress management team that does um, interventions. Does that during- have an acronym? Yeah, SISM. <laughs> and um, I was attending a training workshop once a couple of years ago now, and they were having us do an assessment on compassion fatigue and burnout. And one of the questions on the assessment was, when's the last time you laughed until you cried? Mm-hmm. And I couldn't remember yeah. the last time. And I realized that was that was the canary in the coal mine of my burnout. It was clear that I needed to make some changes in my own life so that I could laugh again. And so that was why I I started that took a sharp turn in my studies to study therapeutic humor because I realized that it absolutely is necessary for our emotional well being. Mm-hmm. Not to mention it makes life way more fun. Well, and it makes you more fun to be around. Totally. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we, the, the, you know, I think it was Victor Borgia that said that the shortest distance between two people is a laugh. Yes, I love that. There's nothing that connects two people faster when you have that little shared experience. Mm-hmm. And when you laugh together, you, you, can, you can navigate life better together. Yeah. Serious? Come on. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and you can parent better. And you can be a better friend and you can be a better employee or leader, boss. I mean, it just, it enhances all kinds of relationships, not just the, not just the casual ones in the grocery store, but every relationship is, is enhanced with good humor, healthy Mm -hmm. humor, Mm -hmm. not ridicule. And it's important to have friends 
and people in your life that you can call and say only ridiculous things to. <laughs> right? Yes. Or you send an utterly ridiculous text to a friend and he yes. sends one back that's even more ridiculous. Yes. And it's this little breath of fresh air in your day. Yes. Where you're, you're hitting the pause button from all the things in life that are so serious and you're having this little exchange with a trusted friend that you say really dumb things with. Yes, <laughs> I have that I friend. Yes, I have that friend and she's texted me about 10 times today and <laughs> nice. I'm so grateful. Yeah. yeah. Because it does. It does make your, it takes, it releases some steam, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. Yeah. So um, let's talk about uh, MOOC one more time because I know uh, the the people, the number of people that signed up was huge. Yes. It was a, a lot of people said, I want in on this course. Yeah, I was surprised the first time we offered it. Uh, I think it was in June of 2019. We had over 3,000 people enroll. That's and crazy. I know. That's it was fantastic. And from all over the world, from Nigeria Seriously? and Prince Edward Island. They're and not funny. Well, some of them are. Um, so, yeah, all over the world. Yeah. Okay. All right. But uh, just to uh, repeat, it enrollment opens June 7th and closes June 20th. Okay. You can head over to myfaithradio.com yep. and you can sign up there. Uh, Melissa, it's really always fun to have you in studio and your um, your work here at the University of Northwestern is great. And I know people love your courses. That's what you. I've heard. Yeah. Yep. Thank you. Um, I get, still get lots of text coming in here. Nice comment. My mom suddenly was diagnosed with a non-cancerous tumor that required brain surgery a couple of years ago. She was hospitalized for a while to stabilize before surgery. My whole family came together with her. We found silliness, dad jokes, and laughter brought wonderful stress relief during that time. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. It's important. Mm-hmm. It's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Melissa, thanks so much uh, for coming in and My talking pleasure. about it. You can head back over to MyFaithRadio.com, sign up for her course. It uh, Registration begins June 7th. We will take a little break, and when we come back, uh, Dr. Greg Heddington was gonna, it will continue in our study of the book of John. We're all the way up to lesson number 15, if you're taking notes. And if you listen to Greg, I bet you are taking notes. I know I am. We'll be right back. having a great day. And I always have a great day when I get a chance to talk to my friend, Greg Heddington. He is with us today as we're going to continue our study on the book of John. I believe we're at uh, lesson 15. I'm excited about uh, where we are in our study. We're at John 10. Greg, welcome back to the show. 
Great, Bill. Good to be here. Let's jump in. I've got my notebook out and pen in hand. All right. Well, welcome to the 15th lesson. Our study the Gospel of John is today. We look at chapter 10. The title for this lesson is The Good Shepherd and His Sheep. And this is one of the most theologically uh, astute chapters in all of John. We've heard of Jesus as the good shepherd, and we think of other biblical shepherds like David before he was king of Israel, who wrote one of the most beloved chapters in Scripture, Psalm 23, which speaks of the Lord as our shepherd. Shepherds and sheep were such an important part of the Middle East, and we read throughout Scripture that sheep and shepherds are used by Jesus as symbols to understand what Jesus means when he talks about being the good shepherd. So now before we talk about what it means for Jesus to be the good shepherd, we need to have some understanding about sheep and shepherds and sheep folds. Sounds like a lot of nature, but it is, uh, before we look at anything else that happens in this lesson. So Roman numeral one, if you're taking notes, sheep. (laughs) Sheep were everywhere in the first century Palestinian pastures and deserts, and they're still important animals in many countries today. So what are sheep like? Well, first, they're very timid animals, and then we have the word sheepish, and that goes along with that. How timid are they? Well, they're so timid that they're not even comfortable drinking water from a running stream. And because of that, shepherds have learned over the years to build little dams near the springs in the desert that hold still water in order for them to drink. Sheep are also not very bright, plus they have poor eyesight, so... If they can't see very well, and a flock moves from pasture to pasture, sheep typically follow close behind the sheep in the front of them. And if the shepherd is not watchful, a flock will just amble right on over one of the many cliffs in the Palestinian area. So with their poor eyesight and tiny brains, it's not uncommon for a sheep to wander off from the flock. And, of course, one of the most cherished parables in Scripture is Luke 15, when Jesus says, A good shepherd will leave his flock of 99 to go and find the one last sheep. So when this does occur, a shepherd leaves the flock in care of an assistant, doesn't leave them alone, has to protect those sheep, and then he goes to find the lost one. And what a comforting image Jesus gives us of the good shepherd who came to earth to seek and to save people who have gone astray. One more aspect of sheep is if the sheep does not move his... from pasture to pasture, instead of nibbling like you would think the tops of the blades of grass like a lawnmower does, sheep will eat the grass right down to the roots in sort of a scorched earth type of behavior. So to say the least, sheep are definitely non-ecologically friendly, and those sweet little sheep would eat every source of grass if they were given the opportunity. Now let's talk about Roman numeral two, shepherds. There were two types of shepherds in the first century, just as there's two types now. First, there are nomadic shepherds known as Bedouin, which is an an Arabic word meaning desert dweller. And they constantly move from pasture to pasture, and they have no permanent residence. Therefore, any woman who decides to marry one of these fellows better forget about ever owning a house. Nomadic shepherds have very little formal education. In the first century, they were not well regarded. In fact, they were ineligible to be witnesses in a legal court case since they were assumed to be sheep stealers, and they were not allowed to worship in the synagogue because working with dead animals made them spiritually unclean in Jewish law. Because of their dodgy reputation in the Jewish community, it was necessary for Jesus to use the adjective good when he referred to himself as a shepherd. So he was the good shepherd. 
Speaking of Bedouin shepherds, the mother of a friend of mine uh, from Lebanon has a ministry to educate and evangelize Bedouin shepherds as they pass through her town in Lebanon, which is a challenging ministry to say the least. Now, the second type of shepherd lives in town and tends to the flocks in nearby meadows. These shepherds who have permanent homes were much more highly respected than Bedouin shepherds because they were hired out by others to take care of other people's sheep, and they were considered to have more stable lives. However, the big difference is that shepherds who are hired to watch the flocks of other people are not going to risk their life if one of their sheep is in danger. And Jesus mentions this fact. Now, I hope you're staying with us as I'm trying to put these pastoral images that Jesus uses into context because it will mean a lot more, I hope, when we see how Jesus explains that he is the good shepherd. Roman numeral three, the desert and its dangers. The desert in Palestine and throughout Scripture is more than just a metaphor. If you visit the Holy Land, you discover that the desert is on the edge of every major city. Except for a few months during the year, the desert is inhospitable to life, and leading a flock can be very treacherous. And apart from the fact that water and grass is scarce, the presence of wild animals, which include leopards, cheetahs, and wolves, hot days and cold nights, bandits, the rumors of ghosts and demons in the desert, and the desert around Judea also has steep cliffs that that drops as far as 1,000 feet in many places. So shepherds carry a four- to five-foot-long staff with a crook on the end, which is used to manage the flock, but chiefly used as a defense weapon. Also, just like the shepherd boy David in the Old Testament, they sling stones, and they still do today, and and the favorite weapon among shepherds uh, is the slingshot, who have an astounding lethal skill with a sling. In fact, when you watch the news, you might see people using their slings sometimes when there's a rebellion going on in the Middle East because they're so accurate. After all, I mean, what else is there to do if you're a shepherd watching sheep graze all day except to practice some of your skills with a slingshot? Now, let's talk about Roman numeral four, the shepherd and the sheep pen. Although caves and other natural formations were used to protect their sheep and still are today, shepherds also use sheep pens, also known as sheep folds, the walls of which are made of stones and arranged in a circle or square, and the walls are at least waist-high with thorny branches on top, and only one opening in the wall, which is referred to in Scripture as the door, and that's the only entrance, and exit. The opening is just narrow enough to count the sheep one by one as they file through at the end of the day, and they're guarded either by thorn bushes or the shepherd, and sometimes his assistant, who either will watch the opening or sleep in the opening to protect the sheep. Again, you're going to talk about Jesus in a little bit. A thief, therefore, would have to climb over the wall to sneak in, but even if he does get inside and knocks out the shepherd, the sheep still would not follow because the sheep only trust and follow the voice of their shepherd. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen one of these YouTube videos of a flock of sheep and their shepherd. It's fascinating. I've seen several where a group of random people are standing outside a fence attempting to call a flock of sheep. One by one, each person tries to call the sheep to them, but they are, but the sheep completely ignore them. Finally, the shepherd begins to call them, and you can see one by one how the sheep perk up their heads and begin to trudge toward the sound of the shepherd's voice. All sheep know the sound of the shepherd's voice. It was true in the first century, and it's true today. 
Now, keep in mind also that there is a kind of affection that the shepherd has for a sheep. And Jewish shepherds in the first century did not have sheep just in order to slaughter them unless they were to be used for sacrifice and worship. Shepherds tended sheep so the sheep might also give them wool and milk and little lambkins one day. (laughs) Now that we have placed sheep, sheep pens, and shepherds in the rural Middle Eastern contest, let's look at Roman numeral 5, I am the door. In chapter 10, Jesus makes his third I am statement when he says, I am the door. Now, after we've talked about how the good shepherd might sleep all night in the door or opening of the cave or the sheep pen to protect the sheep, the metaphor of Jesus as the door is now more clear to us, especially when he says in verse 15, I lay my life down for the sheep. And earlier, he says he's come to bring abundant life to the sheep. Now, we understand that to mean Jesus not only gives his life for us, us, in his death, but he also gives his life to us in abundance and fullness right now through his Holy Spirit. So we do not speak of Jesus giving his life for us in a nonchalant kind of a way, though eternal life is old news. And regarding the abundant life, that means now our purpose, our joy, and the blessings will go on and on, not because we live in the land of opportunity in the USA, which God has blessed like no other country. But instead, that same purpose and fulfillment is shared by believers who live in desperate countries like Iraq and Cuba and Somalia and others, uh, but they have that fulfillment like nothing else. They are committed to Jesus, just as the words of that hymn proclaim, Jesus gave his all, all to him I owe. Now, there is a story about a brilliant violinist who performed with a major symphony in a large city. He was well-known not only as the violin concert master, but also as a popular soloist by classical music lovers in that city. On one occasion, at a benefit luncheon organized by the Symphony Society, after the meal, the audience had an opportunity to ask him questions about his favorite composers, his many hours of practice, and other great conductors that he admired. The final comment of the luncheon was made by the sponsor of the event, who said this to the violinist, I would give my life to play as well as you. Without missing a beat, the musician replied, I did. Now we know Jesus gave his life for us, and in verse 11 he says, The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And there's no more one can do for another person than to give their life. And we affirm that truth as a foundation for our faith. It's clear from this chapter that the words of Jesus are baffling to the Pharisees. They must be wondering, who is this man who talks about sheep? I don't see any sheep following him. Where's his sling? Where's his staff? He doesn't look like a shepherd. What is he talking about? Well, Jesus tells the Pharisees they do not believe in him because they are not among his sheep. And this particular confrontation occurs just after Jesus heals a man who had been blind since birth, and the man is thrown out of the synagogue. We looked at that last week. He's thrown out simply because Jesus performed the miracle on the Sabbath. The Pharisees were so stuck following their meticulous ceremonial laws about right and wrong that they did not recognize the Messiah who was right there in front of them and the abundant life that he offered. And, Bill, that brings us to Roman numeral six. All right, Greg, let me take a little break. I'm 
excited to uh, come back and continue our study in the book of John, chapter 10. Dr. Greg Heddington is my guest. After a short break, we'll be right back. study of the book of John with Dr. Greg Heddington. I wonder if you are enjoying it as much as I am. See, I can see a lot of people sh- nodding their head yes right I now. I see those. Do you see that? <laughs> it's very, very <laughs> flattering, isn't it? It is. I feel very affirmed. Good, good. Let's continue our study in the book of John. We're still in lesson 15, and I think we just uh, heading into Roman numeral number six. That's right, Roman numeral six. And now we're getting into Jesus. You've heard about sheep. Sheep folds and yep. and uh, shepherds. So we're going to get in now. Jesus talks about I am the good shepherd. So this is the fourth I am statement in this gospel. We know what a good shepherd is now because we've just described it. But there is one chapter in Scripture that also describes it. Psalm twenty-three, one of the most beloved and beautiful chapters of poetry and of theology in Scripture for centuries. But it's also an excellent description of the good and competent shepherd. Here are a few verses of the 23rd Psalm, and as we hear the words, let's remember that for someone to operate as a good shepherd in that difficult environment in which they lived was not easy, as we've talked about, or all the dangers. And so we're even more thankful that the Lord is our good shepherd. So here we go, a few verses from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In other words, the sheep are content, and this means because of Jesus, we have the essentials for leading a life with purpose. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. So, just as he leads the sheep to food, he provides for us. He leads me beside still waters. He restores our soul. Well, we know sheep are fearful of running water, so they are led to calm, still waters. By the way, Bill, every time I hear still water, I actually went to university in still water. It was Oklahoma, but I don't think there's any association <laughs> between that and Psalm 23. I don't think. I don't believe there is either. I've never checked, but I'm just yeah. throwing it out. Okay, I'm sorry to break away. I hope it's not being sacrilegious there. Oh, no. Uh, for us, even though our life may be turbulent, Jesus gives us peace that passes understanding. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, which means sheep are led along safe paths. For us, Jesus faithfully leads us in the correct moral direction for our benefit and to preserve his reputation and to be true to his word, and it keeps us safe. Now, I'm not going to go on and on. I mean, it's, it's just it's a, it's a, probably a, a psalm we ought to read more often, but uh, I won't comment on any further regarding how the good shepherd in the fields applies his skills to care for his sheep or how our good shepherd cares for us. But we have to admit that God does not always lead us into green pastures 
or beside still water. There's that still water once again. So even though the Lord provides for us, he does sometimes lead us through dangerous times and into the deep ravines of life, referred to in Psalm 23 as the valley of the shadow of death. Now, that may mean physical death, or it may refer to the same Hebrew word, also translated as deep darkness. Now, in Palestine, when a shepherd is in his fields and encounters deep darkness, that could be simply an unknown area. It could be the sun's going down, but he's not sure what danger he's going to meet. Is it going to be bandits? Is it going to be wild animals? Is it going to be another drop-off of a 1,000 feet? Yet, when the believer confronts deep darkness... We are assured of the presence of the good shepherd who will not leave us, and so we need not fear. One of the joys of studying and not just reading scripture is that we learn to not automatically apply all verses to our own situations before we first consider them in context. And I'll give you an example. Uh, One of these verses directly taken out of context in chapter 10 is often used to teach that the sheepfold is heaven And those who try to crawl in by any other way than faith in Christ are destined to fail. And that is true. And Acts 4.12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among us that, well, by the way, given among men. But the actual Greek in there, just for your uh, observers, your listeners who are concerned and interested in the Greek, The word there is anthropoi, which means both men and women. So there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men and women, which is very encouraging, by which we must be saved in that verse. So we know that salvation, uh, the truth of salvation, is stated throughout Scripture. However, in chapter 10, Jesus makes it clear that the sheepfold he referred to is the nation of Israel. So we need to read it in context. And it's not talking about heaven, although some people can kind of uh, glean that from there. But that's not what is actually intended in Scripture. We know Jesus went first to the Jews, as did the Apostle Paul, and most of them rejected him. Then he widened his fold, as it were, to bring in sheep from other folds, which refers to, guess who, good news for us, the Gentiles which is mentioned in verse 16. Jesus makes it plain that one day both Jews and Gentiles will be united in one Messianic community. Now, does it seem to you that Jesus might have been surprised when the Jews generally did not respond to him as he'd hoped? Do you think perhaps he thought, oh, well, I guess my father and I will have to go with plan B and reach out to the Gentiles because plan A did not work? No, no. God has no plan B. It's all plan A. We don't always understand it, but in God's sovereignty, Jesus' idea of reaching out to the Gentiles was always part of his providential plan because he is in control over all things in the universe, even while much of it remains a mystery this side of eternity. Now, Roman numeral 7, wandering sheep. Well, just like sheep, we tend to wander off spiritually from the Lord all the time because, well, we're we're encouraged not by good things usually, but by a fallen world to live faithfully for our Lord. It's hard to do. We just don't get that encouragement during the day. I mean, you know what I mean. We cannot escape from hearing the lies 
of false shepherds and others in messages from our media, commercials, entertainment, and even our friends. I mean, we struggle to trust the Lord, and I'm constantly concerned about the sources from where we, and especially our youth, receive guidance. For example, the Barna Research Group, which tracks the cultural and religious trends of Americans, conducted a study in which they asked high school students where they would turn first in times of tension, confusion, or crisis. Here's the results. The mothers of those teenagers came in around number 11 on the survey, and their fathers ranked about number 25. Who was up there at the top? Well, their music influences and personal friends scored at the very top. But in times of crisis, it's not just young people, but anyone can be deceived by the wrong leaders when we're coming out of the desert, as it were, or a spiritual dry place, in other words. We need a Savior in this fallen world to show us God's truth. Roman numeral 8. Here's the summary. Now, I'm going to list four theological points from this chapter. And as I said earlier, this is one of the most theological chapters in John. So if you're not able to write all these points down, uh, I think, Bill, they can listen to the broadcast a little later uh, because I'm going to move fairly quickly. Okay. So first of all, Jesus clearly tells the Pharisees why they did not embrace his claims or grasp the significance of his miracles. Why is that? Because they're not his sheep. However, according to Scripture, anyone can become one of a sheep and have abundant life by committing their lives to him, which is another word for belief. Second point, for the Christ follower, we are certain of eternal security because of the words of Jesus in John 10. Our good shepherd, well, this is, excuse me, this is the third point now. Our good shepherd has a threefold relationship with his sheep. Number one, he has a loving relationship because he died for the sheep. Number two, he has a living relationship because he continues to care for the sheep throughout their life. And number three, he has a lasting relationship because not one of his sheep will be lost. So that's loving, living, and lasting. Now, that alliteration helps in remembering those promises. At least it helps me remember. Me too. Yes. And fourth and the last point, when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, it does not in any way suggest that the Father and the Son are identical persons. Rather, it means they are one in essence. God is one being. And there is the Trinity. So Jesus is speaking about unity, not identity. And we've studied the Trinity in an earlier lesson. The Pharisees understood his claim, and this blasphemy of identifying with God, according to Jewish law, was punishable by death. And that threat will continue on into chapter 11. Now, the final questions we ask of ourselves after a study of like this chapter is, have we entered the door by faith? Hmm. Do we continue to trust that the Good Shepherd is indeed good? Are we fully allowing Jesus to be the shepherd of every aspect of our lives? So let's be encouraged this week because we have a good shepherd who longs for all of us to enjoy an abundant life by trusting in him. So receive this good news and then be messengers of it to other people. I and love well, it. That's, that's a few thoughts. I love it, Greg. And we've only got about 90 seconds or less left. Okay. So let me ask you because I love the idea in chapter 10 about 
eternal security. I know that's a point people love hearing more about. Do you have a little bit more to say on that? Yeah, yeah. The life we're living right now is a gift, and salvation is not something we can possibly earn by trying hard. I mean, hear this. We're not saved by good works, but rather by God's grace. Therefore, our salvation cannot be lost by bad works. Let me say it again. Our salvation cannot be lost by bad works. The Apostle Paul says it succinctly in Romans 11, verse 6, referring to salvation. He says, since it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What a truth. And I would encourage uh, all your listeners, Bill, just to look at Romans eleven six frequently. It's so encouraging to all of us. Sounds good. All right, Greg, thank you so much. I love the teaching, and I love hanging out with you. So I appreciate you, and have a great rest of the day. Thanks, Bill. You too. You bet. Dr. Greg Heddington's been my guest as we continue our study in the book of John. We'll uh, be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.